If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. People mattered. The people who were operating the levers of high politics, it really mattered who they were and what they thought and how well they lasted. That was Robert Service on the importance of some of the key players at the end of the Cold War. Nobody would have thought of the British as inherently funny, entertaining, amusing, even frivolous people. If they thought about Britain, they thought, oh, we're actually quite boring. We make dreadnoughts and ball bearings and steel and ships. And that was Dominic Sandbrook discussing Britain's image in the early 20th century. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of November 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 
First up this week is Robert Service, Emeritus Professor of Russian History at the University of Oxford, and a world-renowned expert on the Soviet Union and the Cold War. For his most recent book, Robert has decided to focus on the pivotal years of 1985 to 91, which saw the Cold War finally come to an end. In the book, Robert explores the key events on both sides of the East-West Divide, and the roles of some of the most important players. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with Robert recently, and began by asking him to discuss some of the new sources he'd worked with in writing this book. The thing that triggered the whole project was that I discovered a working diary of the Foreign Affairs Minister of the USSR, or rather of his PA, who kept a regular working diary, working notes, and then he wrote it up as a diary at night. And we have both the, the notes and the diary of Eduard Shevardnadze. And uh, that was my way in, um, because memoirs are really helpful. Uh, but they can be very, very misleading because everyone who writes a memoir wants to raise the profile of the memoirist. I mean, that's, that's always what happens. So it's best to go back to the... Uh, as close to the original sources or events uh, as you possibly can. And this diary... Uh, Actually, the other thing about it that was great was that it, that it was legible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, took a bit of, it took a bit of time to understand some of, some of the quirky ways he wrote Russian, but by and large, you can actually read it. Um, something else that's really nice about the book is among this huge political drama, you've got some really small-scale character studies of people who are hugely important. Yeah. Starting, first of all, I spoke of Reagan. Mm. How important was his personality in the course that this period took? Well, Reagan at the time, I mean, you know, I was alive and um, observing him at the time was very, very underestimated, partly because he had a, a reputation as a warmonger, but actually he did have a very strong commitment to a nuclear-free world. So the fact that there was a man in the White House like that and also a man of the political right who could pull a lot of the American conservatives along with him or at least diffuse their resistance to his wish for reconciliation with the USSR. That was tremendously important. He was a much more intelligent uh, man than he allowed to appear in public. He deliberately created a folksy impression and he was a folksy person. That, that was part of him as well. But he was much more astute than really most Europeans and probably most Americans gave him credit for. I, I, I was very drawn to him. Yeah, I didn't realise how deeply committed he was to disarmament. I didn't, I didn't realise that. He was terrified by it and he was sensible. He was terrified about the idea of a single nuclear exchange between the USSR and America. I mean, this was one of his abiding fears that it could just suddenly happen by accident. How did the leadership of the USSR regard the prospect of nuclear war? Well, the theory was in Moscow uh, that they would be able to survive a nuclear war. And in the Warsaw Pact more widely, 
this was also the doctrine, the military doctrine. Actually, people in the Warsaw Pact outside the Soviet Union recognised that if there were to be a nuclear exchange, East Germany and Poland would be obliterated. So there were lots of people inside the Warsaw Pact who knew the reality would be the de devastation of their countries. And a lot of people close to the Politburo recognised this too. But it took Gorbachev to uh, come to power in 1985 and turn the policy towards peace. Mm. Who, who among his kind of people around him was most important in shaping the direction that the country took? Well, apart from himself, I'd say Eduard Shevardnadze and Alexander Yakovlev. Um, they were quickly appointed to high positions inside uh, the Politburo. And the question that I tried to deal with in the book is how on earth did they get away with it? How on earth did they manage to turn the ship of state round from what it had been sailing towards before they came to power? And the answer I came to by looking at the Politburo records, you were asking about what other things I looked at, and I looked at a lot of Politburo minutes. The answer I came to was that all through the early 90s, sorry, early 80s, the Politburo was looking at problem after problem after problem in politics, economics, culture, society, religion, and finding that there were really strong antagonisms in Soviet society towards the goals of the leadership. Um, so they... they they knew what the problems were. It's not the case that Gorbachev started to look at the problems for the first time when he came to power in 1985. But what is true is that whereas the Politburo had once looked at the symptoms seriously, it had avoided thinking about what it could do for the cure. And Gorbachev, this is, this is um, why he got away with it, uh, initially at least, um, seem to have the, the capacity to face up to applying a cure. That cure actually destroyed the Soviet Union, but he didn't know that that was going to happen. He thought the opposite. He thought the Soviet Union was going to emerge as the great um, new third way in, in world politics. He thought that he was ditching Stalinism and avoiding Reagan's um, neoliberalism in economics, he was going to find a third way. But he actually, he found the way to destroy the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, on the American side, what role did George Shultz play? Oh, he was a remarkable man. I mean, just like uh, Shivanaza on the Soviet side, his job was to find a way towards rapprochement uh, with the other side in the... Cold War. But just as with Shevardnadze in the Soviet Union, Schultz faced a lot of resistance from leading Reaganites. And Reagan didn't quite choose one side or the other in his own administration. He was quite indecisive. He was looking for opportunities, but he didn't want to definitively tie himself to to a policy of reconciliation if the Soviet Union looked as if it wouldn't um, 
play fair. So Schultz really had to push Reagan very, very hard and choose between him and Defence Secretary Caspar Weinberger. And in in 1986-87, Reagan finally came down in favour of Schultz. Schultz had a big view of the way the world economy was going. He was a very, very intelligent, uh, very, very observant, and, and very assiduous, uh, very patient man. He wasn't so patient, though, that he didn't know his own worth. And there were occasions when he had to threaten to, to resign. And the same was true on the Soviet side. So they were, they were propulsive forces. The two foreign ministers on the American side and on the uh, Soviet side, they were prodders. They prodded their leaders and their leaders needed some prodding. So we, we should, I call them the big four, Gorbachev, Reagan, Shevardnadze and Schultz, they, they, were, they, they were an ex- extraordinary quartet. Mm. And they, they do seem to have got to quite like each other. Um, and they, they did what they could to get to be able to like each other. Uh, and in, in some cases that was quite tough mm. because Raisa Gorbachev wasn't as sociable um, a person as... Nancy Reagan wanted her to be, and that was that was difficult. But the the big story was that they actually did get on well together, and did the, and more than get on well together personally, politically, they felt they could trust each other. Mm. There's a sense that as the four people got to like each other more, the process increased in speed. Almost. Yes, yes, and if you look at what was happening, the reality was. The Soviet side was giving way to American demands virtually the whole time. And the trick that the Americans uh, had in their arsenal was never to rub their noses in it, never to make them feel that they were being uh, humiliated. And the trick on the other side that Gorbachev had was to tell his people... I'm making a better world for you. I'm making a better society for you. I'm bringing you forward. So this is not a defeat for us. This is victory. We, we've got to democratise. So uh, for, for a short time, this um, wonderful period in world history where nuclear arms were actually reduced in number for the first time, for the first time ever since they were invented, um, was allowed by the rest of the Politburo. Really, through the first three or four years of Gorbachev's power, he had no resistance to face uh, on this. And the reason for that is that Gorbachev's opponents in the Soviet leadership knew that they needed a breathing space to reconstruct their own economy and they couldn't do that if there was still an arms race so if Gorbachev could do deals to slow down or even get rid of the arms race then Soviet communism could be rebuilt they thought Uh, what were the major sticking points uh, in in this ongoing process I suppose well there were some really big uh, sticking points um 
one sticking point was the decision by Gorbachev to declare his willingness to completely eliminate nuclear arms with a unilateral declaration of intent in January 1986 without warning the Americans about what he was doing. And this created uh, a great sensational positive uh, view of him as a peacemaker around the world, but it, it engendered a, a definite feeling of distrust in the Reagan administration that he, that he preferred publicising himself to actually having uh, negotiations on a, on a serious practical basis. And the, that, that meant that Gorbachev set things back uh, at the very start, in the first 12 months of his power, they they recovered from this, both sides recovered from this, at the Reykjavik summit of October 1986. And they started talking again, not about uh, Gorbachev's preferred stages of nuclear disarmament, but about what was acceptable to both sides. And the sticking point was the strategic defence initiative of Ronald Reagan. He, he absolutely refused to pull this out of the um, bargaining and, and uh, promise to desist from developing this defence initiative. This is the Star Wars programme, so-called. This is the so-called Star Wars programme. He said to Gorbachev at Reykjavik, uh, look, this is a defence initiative, not a, an offensive initiative. And uh, the, the whole world can have it at, um, at the end of things if, if, if all goes well. And, and Gabrishoff said, I, I can't negotiate on that, that basis. So the summit was, a, was um, another sticking point. But actually, uh, months later... In February and March 1987, the Soviet Union gave way on this. Uh, the Politburo forced Gorbachev to give way on this. He wasn't always running things just the way he wanted uh, and made him break up his own package of policies for disarmament and make an offer that, at last, Reagan could accept, which was in 87 and 88 to reduce specifically the short-range and medium-range nuclear missiles, reduce them in number. This was the first treaty signed in 1988 in Moscow in the summer of 1988. So they got over their two big sticking points. Um, they built the trust between each other. They had lots of other sticking points, um, there were doubts about the kind of new nuclear short-range weapons that the Soviets were building. There were worries about on the, on the American side about the Soviets' um, continuing support for Cuba. The Soviets were withdrawing from Africa as a, as a sign that they really wanted a new world, a new world order. There were lots of mm. lots of problems along the way, and it all, the thing is, it all could have gone wrong. 
Um, Gorbachev could have been thrown out of power. Um, the Politburo could have got rid of him. Reagan nearly was assassinated quite early in his presidency. It, it might have happened again. Anything, the, so the contingent factors are very, very important to, the, to mm. this story. Uh, people mattered. The people who were operating the levers of high politics, they, it really mattered who they were and what they thought and how well they lasted. Mm. And it was a devilish, devilishly difficult job for them to handle both the foreign policy and the domestic policy of their own countries. I, I think Reagan and Gorbachev were um, very adept at this. What Gorbachev wasn't adept at was in preserving his own economy. He destroyed his own economy with his economic reforms. That, of course, made him more amenable to the demands of the Americans because he more and more needed the help of the Americans to survive economically. Can we unpick that? Can we say that one of those factors was more important than the other, the economy failing or the Americans pressurising? I think that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that the American pressure was very, very important over several decades. And when, when you look at the economy under Joseph Stalin, Ford Motor Company built a big tractor plant in the USSR for Joseph Stalin, for money, obviously, for money. Mm. That sort of thing hardly happened after the Second World War, and there was an embargo on technological transfer, and the Soviet Union could send satellites into space and it could build nuclear missiles, but it, it proved utterly incapable of building a diversified, modern, uh, up-to-date civilian economy. And I think that was... You know, that was as big a factor in this as, as anything else. And as Gorbachev tried to reform his economy, he did it in a ham-fisted way that didn't involve market principles. And he, he found that, that the economy was simply uh, falling apart. Mm. Turning to NATO, do you think there's a sense that members of NATO later overstated how much they supported this, this movement towards? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, the story you get in all of the memoirs um, of the French and the German and the British leaders is that they were fully behind what Reagan was trying to do. Um, the most vivid example of this is... Margaret Thatcher, who claims to have discovered Gorbachev. Actually, the French and the Canadians and the British all made their own discoveries of Gorbachev before he came to power. Uh, she, she was important, though, in relaying her discovery to Ronald Reagan. She... She alerted Reagan to the importance of Gorbachev before he had power, so that when he took power, 
the Americans immediately made overtures to him. But Thatcher, at that point, turned against Gorbachev and stayed against Gorbachev for at least two years because she feared that he might con Reagan into a deal that would leave uh, Europe vulnerable to a conventional war launched by the USSR and the Warsaw Pact against Western Europe. So she was an obstructive factor. The Americans had their hands full with Mitterrand and, to some extent, Cole, uh, but above all, Thatcher. Uh, and then in the middle of 1987, she somersaulted and she virtually fell in love with him. I mean, there does seem to have been a, a personal as well as a political aspect to this. She went the other way and she suddenly started to trust him and feel sorry for him and uh, all the rest of it. And he, <laughs> if you look at the Politburo minutes, he, he uses quite crude language about her. He knew what was going on. Um, and he didn't totally trust her, um, but she was a useful conduit to Reagan. So I think the West Europe, to sum up, I think the West Europeans took a lot of convincing that the American initiative would not leave Western Europe vulnerable to a Warsaw Pact attack. Um, so they were horrified, for example, by the Reykjavik summit, where when it looked for a time as if Reagan was prepared to give up all, all the short-range and um, middle-range weapons in return for very little. Uh, they were horrified by this, and, and, and Thatcher went on their behalf out to America and really gave him a terrible dressing down. It's a pity we don't have videos of those dressings down. <laughs> but he was, a ve he was a very enduring man, a very durable man. He, he, had a, he, didn't, he, didn't, he wasn't insecure. Uh, he, he felt he knew what he was doing. He could take this from even a rather vociferous British Prime Minister. So, I mean, I think the record is... Um, the West Europeans had a point that there was a strategic problem with denuclearizing Eastern and Western Europe. They did have a point, but Reagan had a vision and he had trust in Gorbachev and essentially he was right. Uh, you say in the book that it's almost like the USSR stopped being a superpower and nobody really noticed. Um, what were the things that most led to that, if you had to just choose a couple? Well, I think, I think um, it, it started falling apart from the inside um, very quickly. It had, it had so many internal... Uh, difficulties on on the on the so-called national question, people in S Soviet Central Asia or the South Caucasus uh, were rising up and uh, uh, virtually setting their Soviet republics against Moscow within the USSR. The economy was breaking up; it couldn't really modernize its military sector in the way it needed, and it had never modernised its 
civilian economy. So it was it was um, a superpower that stood on very um, defective legs. It, it was rotting from from the legs up. Um, it had very bright men in its leadership, but but the the structural problems of the body of the USSR were really fundamental. And um, the more it tried to reform itself, the more difficulties arose because uh, it, it was choosing a path of economic reform that was never going never to really work. It was only going to disintegrate uh, the country. And as it faced up to this, it started to withdraw from parts of the world where it had previously exercised power, uh, or at least a lot of influence. It stopped intervening militarily in sub-Saharan Africa. It went to the Asian countries, which were client states, and said, we're going to change our policy towards China, which has previously been our enemy, and you are going to have to deal with the consequences that we're not going to be quite as friendly and supportive to you as we've been in in the past so so that it 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 even went to cuba and said look it's a different world we want above all to be friends with america from now on so it was ceasing to have that global influence that it had once had it was ceasing to be a real superpower the only thing that left it as a superpower after it withdrew from Eastern Europe was its continuing possession of nuclear weapons. Uh, and that really is the key to Russia's ability to pretend to great power status to this day because nuclear weapons were reduced, very drastically reduced in number in the late 1980s, early 1990s, but they weren't eliminated. To what extent, then, can we still feel the ramifications of this story today in Ukraine or in Syria, for instance? I think we are seeing the consequences of the end of the Cold War not being uh, dealt with in a systematic settlement. There was never a proper peace settlement so that what Vladimir Putin is doing now is starting to challenge the the independence and security of the the western borderlands of the ex USSR um, to claw back influence in Ukraine actually to seize part of Ukraine, annex um, Crimea, intimidate Estonia, Latvia and uh, Lithuania. Um, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of this has to do with a feeling of humiliation, uh, a feeling that the, the Russians lost the Cold War, which they did. Uh, and through the 1990s, uh, there was a, a deepening sense of resentment and um, national humiliation, which didn't really have 
any great expression until the world market price for oil rose in the late 1990s. And then at last, the revenues came into Moscow uh, from sales of oil and gas abroad. And Moscow started to reassert itself. So the 1990s were an illusory um, transitional period um, when Russia wasn't dealt with in terms of a, a permanent peace settlement, and we're paying for that neglect now. Mm. How would you like this book to change how people see this period? Well, I would like people to appreciate more readily than I think has been appreciated. Appreciate the fact that this was a reactive process. This was a bilateral process. It was led by Moscow and Washington. The East Europeans and the West Europeans eventually cooperated in it, but they didn't play the lead in it. Uh, it really was the Americans and the Soviets. I didn't, I didn't expect to find this before I did the research. This is a conclusion I came to. Um, but it was a reactive process. It was a reactive process uh, in broad terms, economic, political, ideological. But it was also a reactive process at the level of the individual leaders. So it's a melding of those big factors and the personalities who were involved that makes a difference. But always, always, always the story is of interaction between the two sides. And I hope that that's what my book will do. It, it'll, it'll say this was not just an American story. It was an American story, but it was also a Soviet story. And it wasn't just a Soviet story. It was the two sides coming together, getting to know each other, putting an end to this dreadful Cold War, which thankfully never became a hot war, but so often came near to being one. If you could somehow travel back in time to this period and ask someone involved in this story a question, what, what would you ask? I'd ask uh, Ronald Reagan, did you really think there was a chance of total elimination of nuclear weapons in your lifetime? And did you trust Gorbachev? To what extent did you feel that continuing the pressure on him was actually the key thing that you were doing? And I'd ask Gorbachev, why on earth did you think that if you um, brought freedom of expression into this monolithic system, how on earth did you expect it not to fall apart uh, within a matter of years. How did you think that this system could work without the KGB? I think you'd have to get them both against the wall. I mean, uh, I did meet Gorbachev in, in the, the mid-90s and uh, talked to him a little about uh, Lenin. I found him a very, very... I was writing a biography of Lenin at the time. I found him a very evasive person to talk to um, 
I think you'd have to have them up against the wall and say, you're not going out of this room until you answer these questions. <laughs> Unlikely, eh? <laughs> <laughs> that was Professor Robert Service. The End of the Cold War, 1985 to 1991, is out now in the UK, published by Macmillan. In the US, it's due to be published next week by Public Affairs. Before our next interview, I'd like to remind you about our next BBC History magazine events, which are taking place in February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month at Bristol's Emshed Museum, we're holding two-day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers plus a buffet lunch. If you'd like to find out more or purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Our second interview this week is with Dominic Sandbrook. Dominic is a historian, author and broadcaster who is also a regular contributor to our magazine. His latest BBC TV series is Let Us Entertain You, a four-part history of Britain's post-war culture, the first episode of which aired last night, the 4th of November, on BBC Two. I spoke to Dominic a little while back to find out more. So Dominic, when would you say Britain first became a cultural superpower, or has it always been one? Well, I think Britain has always been culturally important, but I think there's definitely a case that 
during that, say, the 18th and 19th centuries, where Britain was reaching the zenith of its sort of um, industrial and economic and imperial diplomatic supremacy, that we weren't really great big hitters culturally. The big hitters were people like the French and the Russians, the Russian novel in the 19th century, or sort of French art and fashion, all those kinds of things. It was Paris that sort of set the, that set the, the tone and, and the temperature, if you like. And then it seems to me that when you had the arrival of kind of mass literacy and a kind of mass culture in the late 19th century, that was something Britain was very good at. The sort of Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, the detective novel, stuff that appealed to a very broad audience that wasn't just sort of an elite audience. And it seems to me that as we lost our diplomatic, military, economic supremacy in the 20th century, we invented a new role for ourselves, which is this kind of entertainers to the world. Uh, role. I mean, to me, the most revealing thing is the Olympic opening ceremony, London 2012, which, you know, people in Britain were obviously very fused by it and things like the NHS sequence and whatnot. But around the world, looking at the international press coverage, what people were drawn to, they were drawn to the music, to the humor, to the sort of Mr. Bean sequence, the thing with James Bond and the Queen jumping out of the helicopter, chariots of fire. British rock music, all that kind of thing. And international commentators, you know, in the American papers or Chinese or whatever said, oh, yes, this is what Britain does. Britain's very good at this. This is how Britain defines itself. This is what Britain is now famous for. And seeing that made me think, you know, that's obviously not always been the case. Nobody would have said that in 1890. Nobody would have thought that the British as inherently funny, entertaining, amusing, even frivolous people. If they thought about Britain, they thought, oh, we're actually quite boring. We make dreadnoughts and ball bearings and steel and ships. And we're a sort of a mercantile, um, perhaps slightly dull, self, very self-interested, very mercenary people. But they didn't think of us as kind of madcap entertainers, which is the, the role that we've now invented for ourselves. You know, successive prime ministers have gone to sort of record industry or computer game industry conventions and said, oh, this is so important to Britain. This is what Britain does. This is our calling card to the rest of the world. And we're very good at it. And they make no mistake, you know, it, but I think there's some element of it being, as it were, a self-invented part that we play that in some extent, maybe disguises our fall from grace in other areas. And what you were saying there about how people abroad viewed that ceremony quite differently to how people in Britain may have done, is it also the case that the, the cultural products that people in Britain are, say, most proud of or identify with most are not necessarily the same as how people abroad identify British culture? Well, well, that's a really good question because there are obviously some things that don't travel. So if you think about something that is part of our kind of cultural shorthand, that even people who haven't seen it know what it is, I say Coronation Street. Coronation Street is the most popular program in Britain over the last 50 years in terms of its viewing figures. And it's the longest, arguably the longest, most detailed story that's ever been told in British cultural history. You know, one street, the life of one street over so long, so many characters, so many storylines, but it doesn't travel really at all. In the early 1960s, they Granada tried to sell it to America as a sort of kitchen sink angry young man series to try and sort of cash in on the popularity of that that side of things but it didn't really work and obviously there's that kind of very introverted inward looking culture that doesn't travel what tends to travel what tends to work in the export market are things that play on nostalgia class a sort of sense of 
Britain setting the the tone in terms of taste and dress and all those kinds of things, very backward looking, often fascinated by British history, fascinated by kings and queens. So anything to do with Shakespeare, anything to do with the monarchy, anything to do with the sort of upper classes. So the sort of world of the country house, Downton Abbey, Brideshead Revisited. There's a definite formula basically, for British cultural success abroad. That is the image of Britain that people, particularly in America, which is the world's biggest sort of single cultural market, that's the image of Britain that people want to buy into. And that explains, I think, the success of the Bond films, the Bond character, is that he is this sort of British gentleman adventurer archetype that goes right back to the Victorians. But it also explains, to some extent, I think, the success of Harry Potter. The British boarding school stories have always been popular. And I think there's a kind of mystique of the British boarding school and the British sort of educational establishment and the elite that is universal, that's not just confined to Britain. And is it just coincidence that this kind of British popular culture explosion has coincided with Britain's decline as a world power in other ways, do you think? I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think there are a number of... I think one argument might be that the energies that were poured into other fields are now poured into cult, the cultural field. So a lot of the people who have been very instrumental in exporting British culture, maybe not just in terms of produce, you know, as musicians or as writers or whatever, but behind the scenes working in the sort of the companies and the industry that makes it possible. A lot of those people have been educated at the public schools or Oxford and Cambridge, the places that previously would have been sending them out to run the Indian civil service or something. So there's an argument that the energy is just being funneled in a, in a new direction. But I think there's actually something deeper, which is that the death of the empire meant the death of as it were, consumer resistance to our cultural products. So in America, for example, in the first half of the 20th century, there was still a strong strain of kind of anglophobia, of dislike of Britain and the British Empire. You know, even someone like Franklin Roosevelt saw the British Empire as anachronistic, as backward, as oppressive and all those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, if you had sort of screened something like Livier's Henry V in the heyday of the empire, I think a lot of viewers would have said, oh, this is the British kind of bigging themselves up. They're such, basically, they're such bastards. They go around crushing everybody and they're so full of themselves and proud of themselves and all this. But once the empire had started to decline, I think it was much easier for Britain to, to redefine the way that people saw it. So basically, from the Beatles onwards, really, British cultural exports were free from those controversial, unpleasant imperial associations, which meant that young people in, I don't know, Tuscaloosa or wherever, or elsewhere in Europe or around the world, could sort of buy into an image of Britishness without feeling that that in also inevitably involved the empire and a kind of bullying superpower and all the rest of it. Has British culture, British popular entertainment benefited from the links with, you know, United States and their global dominance, for yeah, example, abs language. Absolutely. I think it's not the sole explanation. I mean, talking to people about this, a lot of people sometimes say, well, you know, the English language is, is obviously key. And I think it is key in penetrating the American market. There's no question about that. But that doesn't explain why James Bond is watched in, in Africa or in Asia or anything, because if he was in French, he would need to be dubbed or subtitled just as he is even now in Britain, you know, in, in English. Uh, but I think it definitely helps to break America. And there's no question about that. And that then brings in money that you can use to sort of to bolster your cultural empire, as it were. Uh, but I think I, I think there's always been a sort of we've had a slight insecurity about American culture going right back to the birth of cinema. And that that's actually 
been quite a good thing because it's driven people on to develop a culture of their own in competition with that in America. So there's often this image that we are somehow impaired or we are damaged in some way because American culture is so pernicious and it in, comes over the Atlantic and it swamps British culture. And so we, we fail to develop a voice of our own. I don't think that's quite right. I think if you look at the cinema, for example, the British cinema was revived in the sort of late 1930s, 1940s, 1950s by the J. Arthur Rank film empire. And Rank himself was a, a miller, an industrialist, who was a very, very fervent Methodist and very patriotic. He was deeply critical of Hollywood. And he decided to get involved with the film industry because he didn't want to see young people going to see American films and developing American habits and sort of American moral values, which he saw as, as debased. So there's an argument that there, the competition with America and the sort of looming leviathan of American culture actually was very beneficial because it led Rank to invest in the industry, to plow loads of money in and to make all these films, the Olivier Shakespeare films, films like um, A Matter of Life and Death or The Red Shoes, kind of classic 1940s era films, the Ealing comedies and so on. Those kinds of pictures, which arguably wouldn't have developed otherwise. It was the kind of spur of American competition that pushed people to make them. Over this period, how accurately has our popular entertainment actually reflected the changes in the society in Britain? Well, arguably not immensely accurately. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about culture, it's difficult to generalise because there's just so much of it. So you can find something that reflects everything. You know, when I've been writing my books about post-war Britain, about sort of social and political developments, you can always find a sitcom in which somebody says something about whatever it is you're writing about. Or you can find a, a kind of um, an obscure pop song in which the lyrics allude to the strike that you're kind of about to discuss. Um, so you can always find a, a cultural mirror. But I think in terms of the sort of mass culture that people are familiar with, particularly around the world, it takes tends to be surprisingly backward-looking, and it tends to be very much involved with this sort of nostalgic image of Britain. So if you're thinking about the really big cultural hitters, the people that, let's say, you walk down the street in Hungary, and people will have heard of, I mean, you're talking about, obviously, in music, there's a, a variety to choose from, but the Beatles would be top of the tree. In literature, you'd be talking about, I mean, most people will probably have heard of Sherlock Holmes, or they'd have heard of Agatha Christie, they'd certainly have heard of The Lord of the Rings, because obviously, because the films... They would have heard of the James Bond film series. They'd have heard of Grand Theft Auto, the video game, which is British made, even though it's set in America. So there's a, a, a number of things, and they tend to be the Grand Theft Auto's case is something that we're very good at, is presenting visions of America back to America. And that's arguably what someone at the group like the Rolling Stones do. They make American music for an American audience, but with a slightly British twist. But things like Agatha Christie, The Lord of the Rings, films about Shakespeare, those kinds of things, they're very much of the kind of kings and queens, nostalgic, the sort of old-fashioned hierarchy, deference, all that Downton Abbey, that kind of world. That tends to be the world that's reflected in a kind of high-achieving culture. And I think the reason for that is... It's not just that that's something uniquely British. I think because the values those things present are in some way universal. So people everywhere feel that in an age of globalization, that old values are being lost, that traditions are disappearing, that people used to know their neighbors and a nation was a united family and all that kind of thing. That kind of vision that something like Downton Abbey presents, that appeals to people 
you know, it's not pure escapism. It also has resonance in the kind of the anxieties, I think, that people feel, not just in Britain, but all over the world, where kind of modernity is having those kind of unsettling effects. So does it also tie into a global fascination with British history as well? Yes, absolutely. British history is arguably one of our great cultural commodities. In the 1930s, when British cinema was at its, you know, basically dead, American magazines, newspapers used to say that the British should concentrate on what they did well. And they said, what you do well is history. The first British film to really make it big in America, in Hollywood, was about Henry VIII, was the private life of Henry VIII, of Charles Lawton. And the first British films to win Oscars or get Oscar nominations were often, you know, Shakespeare films. So there's always been a fascination with British history. And the British historical stories, the story of Henry VIII, or the story of Elizabeth I and the Spanish Armada, or Robin Hood, or King Arthur, they are well known not just in Britain, but all around the world. And obviously Hollywood has played a huge part in that, but so have you know, Tennyson with, with Arthur, or Walter Scott with the Robin Hood story. They've helped to drive that sort of worldwide recognition of our sort of historical stories, if you like. And I think that will never go away i mean at least not in our lifetimes i would imagine hollywood will still be making versions of those kind of british traditional british historical stories because they're so immediately recognizable and because over time they've become kind of refined into ever more elaborate and more satisfying anecdotes that worldwide audiences find very attractive i mean we have a sequence in the series about game of thrones game of thrones is written by an american it is made by an American company for a largely, you know, American audience. But it is remarkable that it draws so closely on British history. It's basically, you know, a fictionalized version of the Wars of the Roses that so much of it is immersed in the world of kind of specifically English history, English medieval history. And that this is something that clearly audiences all over the world buy into. You know, it's not about American history or French history or anything like that. It's, it's specifically... A British or English. And I think that um, is a very good marker of the worldwide appeal of our, of the kind of stories that we tell about ourselves. I don't think there's any other country in the world. Obviously, American culture is, is hugely successful, hugely important. But in terms of characters and stories, I think there are very few countries that export characters and stories so successfully. You know, everybody watches American films, but James Bond is arguably the single most potent cinematic character, you know, far more than Jason Bourne or any of the other sort of rival spies. Sherlock Holmes has been played more often on film than any other character in history. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And actually, when Americans do films about American political leaders, for example, even the Lincoln film, they don't always necessarily have that global resonance. No, I don't think so. I think something like that, as you say, the Lincoln film is a good example. You know, it was a very successful film. It did well. But I don't think Abraham Lincoln has the, you know, he's not King Arthur. I don't think people are going to be telling and inventing and, and there's not the sort of glamour and the romance. I think that a romance is a very good word, actually, in this area, partly because the romantics, the romantic poets and writers are quite important in establishing some of these images of Britain. But also because I think abroad, there's a kind of romantic dimension, which is a lot to do with kind of nostalgia to British culture. That means that it appeals, you know, if you're living in sort of a suburb in Thessaloniki or something, that there's a kind of image of Britain and Britishness that you still buy into. And I think the other thing is kind of a sense of class. So I remember we did a program a couple of years ago about the car industry and somebody saying to me that a sort of German car industry executive saying that, 
British brands were hugely successful, kind of prestige elite brands in developing markets like India and China. Because what they wanted was to buy into a sense of history. They wanted to drive a Bentley rather than a swanky kind of American car because they felt that a Bentley or an Aston Martin had all this sort of these, you know, decades, if centuries of tradition behind it. Now, that may be a complete sort of misapprehension and invention, but it's very powerful. And I think the same is true for our culture and for our kind of cultural stories. There's a sense that these things are built on layer upon layer of tradition. And this is something that, you know, America just can't provide. And I think that's our, one of our key assets, culturally speaking. Does this global popularity of British culture and history connect to the fact that Britain has always been such a global player? Well, certainly for the last 300 years with the empire, with the Commonwealth, with its trade networks, it has exported its culture as well. Yes, absolutely. I think obviously we've always been cultural exporters to an extent. If you think sport is a classic example of a kind of cultural export and that's been hugely successful, cricket, rugby, football and whatnot. But I think that those imperial links actually are pretty important. You look at somebody like Kipling, who obviously you know divided his time really between Britain and United States and India and so on. There's always been a sense of British culture as a kind of I guess a kind of crossing place of um, international cultural traditions. Somebody, even somebody who seems quintessentially British or English, somebody like Agatha Christie, she spent a lot of time in the Middle East with her husband, who's an archaeologist. She set some of her books in kind of Middle Eastern or Near Eastern settings. There's always this kind of outward looking aspect to British culture. Pop groups have always been keen to conquer new territories you know to sort of cross boundaries and to export their music writers Tolkien you know he's born in South Africa and I think that he's born in South Africa he comes back to Birmingham as a little boy this sort of sense of there being another world beyond the sea all that kind of thing which runs all the way through Tolkien's kind of mythology I don't think it's too fanciful to link that to his personal history and to his family's personal history of kind of crossing oceans and going abroad and and all the rest of it and obviously empires play a huge part in kind of books like the Lord of the rings and he wrote them at the zenith of the british empire so i think empire has a quite a deep significance and one other thing we're very good at is the kind of the figure of the cultural entrepreneur so somebody like andrew lloyd Webber is a very good example brian, brian epstein with the beatles but one person we do in the series is chris blackwell who founded um, island records they famously discovered U2, but also they're most famous really for Bob Marley and um, for sort of popularizing reggae in the 1970s. And that's a classic example. Blackwell was descended from a colonial family in Jamaica and used the money he had, his kind of family money, to set up this record label to take Jamaican music back to Britain as his predecessors would once have taken Jamaican crop sugar, let's say. He took music And he exported music, he made it successful in Britain, and then he used it to find more acts in Jamaica and all the rest of it. So it's a classic, if you like, um, colonial trade network, but just been taken over by popular culture. The the export is no longer sugar or something, it is music. And I think you can't underestimate the importance of that sort of trading history and that imperial colonial history in establishing what I think is our modern cultural supremacy. Looking at the the present day, what aspects of British popular culture of today do you think historians in the future will look back on as the most significant well that's a very tough question because as with anything you know when you ask historians anything about the present they're almost always wrong and it's very difficult to get a sense of perspective i think what's one of the really striking stories in the last sort of 
20, 30 years has been Britain's success at making video games. Video games are often thought of as, certainly when I was growing up, they were thought of as slightly frivolous, if not childish, cultural activity. But obviously they're now hugely important economically, more important than films. They make more money than films do. And they make more money than the music industry does. And they play a huge part in the imaginations of, you know, let's say people under the age of 20. And Britain makes a lot of them and is very good at it. And weirdly, one of the pe- people who arguably deserves a little bit of credit is Margaret Thatcher, who was probably the last person you'd think of when you look at the cover of Grand Theft Auto. But the Thatcher government was instrumental in putting computers in schools and really pushing computer literacy in Britain in the 80s. And by the end of the decade, you had a real fledgling video games industry in Britain, sort of quite amateurish. So it started off from people in their bedrooms, literally in their bedrooms, making games and sending them in on cassettes to fledgling software companies. But now, you know, in places like Guildford or in Scotland, where they make their GTA games, you have these little um, hubs of expertise. They don't employ huge numbers of people, um, but they can make a lot of money. And they are arguably a very good example of the kind of the latent skills and creativity and talent that that Britain offers. It's odd that we don't think of them. People play, you know, millions of people play these games and they don't often think of them as British, but they are British. It's a sign, I guess, that we're not just about, you know, country house dramas and um, detective novels, that we can still make stuff that feels very modern and very new and exciting and kind of controversial. You know, who knows? I think future historians will be interested in that as a sort of sign of at a time when, as it were, heavy industry and, and sort of enterprises that employed thousands of people, those kinds of things have basically gone by the board. And yet there's a kind of high skilled area of our economy that's doing very well and making stories that basically millions of people are buying into. That was Dominic Sandbrook. Let Us Entertain You continues next Wednesday on BBC Two at 9pm. Episodes will also be available on the BBC iPlayer. And Dominic has written a book to accompany the series entitled The Great British Dream Factory, The Strange History of Our National Imagination, which is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you can read more from Dominic each month in BBC History magazine, where he writes the regular anniversaries column. Speaking of the magazine, our December edition has just gone on sale. Inside this month's issue, we have articles on Henry VIII's will, the luck of Richard III, the history of China, and the Loch Ness Monster, among other things. You can get hold of our December edition now in all good news agents and digitally. And just before we go, I'm delighted to say that we've just been included in a new podcast directory tool from NPR called Earbud. Earbud contains over 200 different podcast episodes selected by a number of celebrities and listeners. And our episode from the 14th of August last year on James Bond and Vichy France was chosen by the musician Ben Stidworthy. If you'd like to listen to this episode again or to some of the other great podcasts included there, then head to earbud.fm. And that is pretty much it for this week. But please do listen in next time when we'll be talking to Mary Beard and Robert Harris in a Roman history special. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. 
Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.